through verses 11 through 24 in Galatians. And I'll begin reading with verse 11 and I'll read several verses and then we will start with the teaching. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. So that's Galatians 1, verses 11 through 14. We will try to make our way through the end of the chapter, but let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, it is a blessing to be able to look into the scriptures. And so for a few moments, Lord, help me to speak clearly. I pray that you would anoint each person's ears to be able to hear and receive the word of the Lord. And then, Father, help us to apply all of this to how we live every day in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Galatians is a very fun epistle to read and to deal with because you're looking at the true gospel, the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is in contrast to what is a false gospel. And Paul is pretty explicit as he indicates in the earlier verses that even if an angel or some human came with a different teaching, he says rejected. So he has trained them on the authentic teaching, but he wants them to avoid what is false. But when we come to verse 10, Paul asks the question, am I a man pleaser? A man pleaser is the kind of individual who does not like to see anyone unhappy. And they will go out of their way to try to make sure that they please everybody. You know as well as I do, if you have two people that are in disagreement, the one that you tried to make happy, you're going to have the other one unhappy with you. So with Paul, then, the, the thing that matters most is not whether or not you're pleasing man, but whether or not you're pleasing God. So the, the scripture says the fear of man brings a snare. Some people are afraid of people because the people have power over them. Sometimes people are afraid of individuals because they're non-confrontational. Some people are fearful and don't want to do anything to rock the boat simply because they like everything to remain at ease. But you can't do the gospel without making some people sad, mad, or glad. Because the scripture says that the gospel or the cross is an offense or a stumbling block to the world. So you, you can minister the gospel and witness about your faith in Jesus Christ. And you'll have someone that says you're on the right track. But then you'll have five others that say, I think you're on the wrong track. And then you have a few others that say, I don't think the train's on the rails at all. But you still have to continue in the truth. And as Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith. So verse 11, then, as we move into this, because there are a lot of good things in it. Verse 11, Paul is saying, I want you to know, I'm trying to assure you 
that the gospel that I'm ministering to you, I didn't get from anybody. God shared this with me supernaturally. I received this as a divine revelation. He says that in verse 12. Now, let's never forget that Paul's salvation was divine. He was on the road to Damascus, going to Syria to apprehend Christians and to imprison them. And then he had a supernatural vision of the Lord appearing to him, telling him that what he was doing was wrong because by persecuting the church, he was really persecuting Jesus Christ. Now, I put the emphasis on his salvation because when we talk about how he received the gospel, if the Lord was able to appear to him one time, you know, the Lord can appear to him a second time and a third time. So the revelation he received was supernatural. And the Greek word for revelation there in verse 12 is exact same word that we have in the book of Revelation that describes the apocalypse of John. So John on the island of Patmos had a series of visions. And so I like to believe that Mr. Paul, also being a man of visions, he learned what he learned about the gospel primarily from Jesus. Now, how do I know that Paul was a man of visions? Well, I just told you about his salvation. Then, of course, we don't want to forget where the angel of the Lord appeared to him when he was on the boat and told him that if everybody stays in the boat, they'll be protected. Then he had the other vision where the, the Lord came to him and said, don't be afraid of all of these people that hate you. I have many people in this city that are on my side. And we don't want to forget what he said in Corinthians, where he talks about going on from vision to vision, how he was caught up into the third heaven and he heard some things that normal ears would never be able to hear. So Paul's ministry was supernatural. He had what we would say would be regular visitations of the Lord, though they may not be as frequent as we would think they were. But he, he definitely learned what he learned about God, the Holy Spirit, the anointing, the touch of God. He learned all of that in the presence of the Lord. So then in verse 13, I love this where he says, you've heard about my conversation in time past. Here is something we should all know. All of us have a past. And there are there are probably things in all of our past that we would prefer people did not know. In fact, there are probably people in your past that you probably don't want to see again. Because of maybe relationships you had with them or bad relationships you had with them or memories that immediately are evoked as soon as you see them. That's why some people don't even go to their class reunions. They say, why should I go back to the class reunion and see all of them people again that I didn't like way back then? So now I have to really act like I like them when I still don't like them. See, so a lot of people, they don't do it at all. But we all have a past and, and whatever is back there, if, if it's, if it's terrible, then let's not forget it's under the blood. And no one will ever know about your past deeds unless you tell them. The only reason so many of you know stories about me is because I tell it. Usually in the, in the, uh, I usually tell it in the, in the middle of some kind of a, uh, illustration that, that I have up here, but, but I can assure you there are a whole lot of things I'm leaving out that you're never going to hear. See, once, once God pulled the curtain on our past, we want to leave it there. 
And this is what this is what Paul says in verse 13. He said, you've heard of my lifestyle or conversation in time past. It's possible to live in such a way that everybody hears about it. Now, now think about this. <clears throat> you can spend 40 years developing a good reputation and then with one bad deed, just utterly destroyed, utterly destroyed. And you end up going to your grave trying to live down that one bad deed because people hear about that. So Paul says his past life, being in the Jewish religion, he gives us some information about what he was doing. He persecuted the church of God. Now, he didn't say he persecuted the Romans and the Greco-Roman religion. He didn't say anything about he persecuted people that worship rocks and stones and the sun and the moon. But he had a specific target. And that was because the belief in Jesus Christ was just too much for him. How in the world can these folks worship a man and believe a man is God that died on the cross? There is no worse way to die than on a cross. And, and Paul was opposed to that. So he says he persecuted the church and wasted it. So he tried to ruin it and he tried to destroy it. But praise the Lord. What's in the past is there. But thank God for the present. And we praise the Lord for the future. We don't have to live back there. But verse 14, still testifying, he says, I profited. Or he's saying that he excelled in the Jews religion above his friends. And he was exceedingly zealous of the traditions of his fathers. Matthew uses the phrase traditions of the fathers or traditions of the elders to refer to the collected teachings of the rabbis that were transmitted from one generation to the next generation. And many people had memorized these to the point that Jesus said, your traditions have made the word of God of no effect. So it's possible to know more about tradition and have more traditions memorized than you actually know of the of the word of God. So this is what we have with verse 14. Now, what kind of zeal do you have? Are you exceedingly zealous in regard to the Bible? Or is it in regard to the traditions of a particular church or, or sect or something like that? A person can become so caught up in trying to excel and to move uh, further and beyond their peers in promotion in a church setting that they totally forget that the most important thing is to grow in grace and grow in knowledge. And people do it all the time. You say, what, what kind of traditions, what, what would this look like? Well, Paul was interested in the ceremonies, the liturgy. He was interested in making sure that every Jewish child was circumcised. He did not want anybody to break the Sabbath. So it didn't matter how far they had to go. You could only walk so far on the Sabbath day. That's why Acts chapter one speaks of a Sabbath day journey. Now in Israel today. On the Sabbath from Friday evening to Saturday evening, if you go into a hotel and you need to get in the elevator to go to the floor where your room is. On the Sabbath day, they have the elevators programmed so that they'll just all day long go floor to floor so that no Jewish person will have to get in the elevator and push the button because pushing the button constitutes work. 
And many Jewish families in Israel hire Christian nannies and maids because they know that Christians will work on the Sabbath day and it doesn't bother them. So the rabbis would argue about if you're going to use a comb and comb your hair on the Sabbath day, how how many inches can the comb go through your hair before it constitutes labor? There are all of these debates about that that have been collected. And these folks love those those kinds of things. Well, as a Christian, you do not want to put the traditions of anything or anyone above God's word. Don't you don't you don't want to do that. So if you're 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 talking with someone, as I did one time, I asked somebody, I said, are you are you a Christian? And they said, well, well, I'm the secretary of so and so church. As if being a secretary in the church made her a Christian. But she honestly believed that. And, and then I've, I've met people who they can walk me through all of the, the shorter and the larger catechisms of Luther. They can, they can take me through all of the, the principles that are in, uh, Calvinism and, and what we should believe about predestination and all of these kinds of things. And if I ask something like, well, what is the book of Obadiah about? And you just get this blank stare because we, we taught people to to memorize certain traditions very often without teaching them to to learn the word of God. Traditions can fail you. Now, Paul never said tradition was a bad thing, because even in in Timothy to the letter to, to Timothy, he told him, you know, hold on to the traditions that I've taught you. So we all have traditions. Christmas time, you may have a family tradition. Easter time, you may have a family tradition. Every church does things differently. On Sunday, uh, typically Sunday morning, I just walk to the front of the church. I usually shout out, it's a great day to be alive, if you're alive. And then I open up the Bible and I say, everybody, let's turn to so-and-so. Then we have a congregational reading. Then I'll say, let's stand and then I'll pray. And then we'll go right into praise and worship or something. That's our tradition. But there are a lot of other people that their services are totally different from that. But how, however it's arranged, that doesn't make it sinful. I'm only saying that any kind of a tradition that comes along in your life that sidelines the scripture, that's a problem. That's a problem. Because traditions can hinder a person from walking with God in a greater way. Uh, in verse 15, Paul, he says, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. You're familiar with Jeremiah chapter one, where the Lord said to Jeremiah, before uh, I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Now, here is another verse that is absolutely glorious when we talk about why we like the uh, the preservation of the child in the womb. And that is because, as you can see, verse 15, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. It pleases God when children are born into this world. That pleases God. It doesn't please God if we cut off that life. You say, why? Because verse 15 says, and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. Every child conceived has a specific calling upon his or her life. There is something that that kid can do if that kid could just make it into this earth realm and then grow up and become a wonderful, polished citizen doing things for for the king. But 
imagine how many how many good presidents we probably could have had had those lives not been taken. So it pleased God for you to come into this world. It pleased God for me to come into this world. And the separation from the mother's womb, that is the objective of childbirth anyhow. God wants the child that's conceived, because he keeps using the language about a mother's womb, and then in the Old Testament talking about a baby or a child, like in reference to Rebecca, he, he told her, two nations are within your womb. So God sees the child, but God sees the, ch- the children that come from the seed of that child. So it's, it's not just you. When you were born, God already saw your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your great-great-grandkids, all of that coming out of you because that's part of the seed. So verse 15 says, it pleased God who separated me and called me. Now, what is the major purpose of every human being on this planet? Verse 16, that Jesus might be manifested in them. But they do not usually learn that until after they become a Christian. Paul said, my life is hid in with Christ in God. Before you became a Christian, you, you had a lot of ideas about how to live and you probably your life was governed by your own decisions and you did what you wanted to do. But once you came into the kingdom of God and your eyes were open and you really began to get God's perspective and outlook on the world that he made, then suddenly you realize that the primary purpose of my existence is to manifest his son. And when you realize that, when you know that the, that the only thing you're going to take into eternity with you is your spirituality, because you're not going to take your house, a car, no pictures, none of that's going with you. But when you realize that the holiness that you have in this life is going with you into eternity, you, you quickly realize that, that I'm here to make sure people see Jesus in me. In my conversation, in my conduct, because it's through you that God is able to walk a dog, teach in a classroom, mm-hmm. advocate for people who are having difficult times, sweep a floor, drive a car, fly an airplane. God has to have people like you through whom he can manifest. He needs people that wear pants, skirts, dresses, suits, bibs, and everything else. To manifest his son. Well, Paul understands that now. That's why he's hitting on this real heavy in Galatians 1. Now, verse 16, he says that I might preach him among the heathen. Now, you may not be called to be a pulpit preacher. You may not be called to be a Sunday school teacher. But you are called to be a witness. With your lips, you are called to declare Jesus is Lord and to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, his, his birth, life, death, and, and resurrection. And as the scripture says here, among the heathen, that's among people that don't know. I'm, I'm, I'll give you some, something else on this. I'm convinced that there are far, far less people in the heartland that know about God than we think. I'm convinced of that. Now, we, we, we tend to, you know, we, we've known everybody. You've known people for 50, 60 years. And, of course, you remember their grandparents and great-grandparents. And, you know, you can remember when their great-grandparents used to babysit you as a kid and, and so on and so forth. But, but then when you start thinking back and, and thinking about people's Christianity, then very often you realize Christianity was something that was inside a church but it was not in the house. 
See, Christianity is not Christianity unless you take the church home with you. You have to take it home with you. So we don't just do this for an hour a week or for two hours a week. We, we do this 24 hours a week in order to set a standard and an example for people. And, and preaching and witnessing is not about quoting scripture. I don't have to quote a scripture to anybody in order to be a witness in my conversation. I don't have to say, well, according to, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, it says... And I don't have to say, well, you know, Colossians chapter 2 says, all I need to do is have a conversation with people and explain to them a basic principle that's out of the scripture. Even if it's something as simple as, you know, your favorite verse, uh, spare the ride, you spoil the child. I know some of you love that verse. You know, you like, like to chase the kids around the house reciting that one. Spare the rod, spoil the child. But, you know, you, you can have a conversation with people sometime and let them know that, if you don't have discipline in this world, you will have an undisciplined society. Paul said that the law was never created for folks like you and me. He said it was created for people that are unrighteous. The sign out there that says 65, I can assure you that sign has nothing to do with me because I drive 55. But for, but for you who, who see the sign that says 65 and you interpret that to mean 72, then, I mean, that is, that, that is for you. And that's why the flashing lights come up behind you and you're trying to figure out, well, how fast, how, how, how many over was, was I going? You wouldn't have had to try to figure that out if you'd have been doing 55. 55 is a good number. I'm telling you, that's a good number. Okay. So. Paul says in the last sentence of verse 16, I did not sit down with flesh and blood or any human being and talk about this. But he says in verse 17, I didn't even go up to Jerusalem. But he says, I went into Arabia. Arabia is a big place. And in this time, Damascus, Syria, was a part of that continent that we know of as Arabia. And why did Paul go there to spend some time with the Lord? And we all need that. Each one of us needs some time where it's just you and God. Some time where you can wrestle with God. If you've got questions, you can talk to God about them. You can get into the word of the Lord and you can talk to God or you can just pray. But you need some alone time with God. Everybody has to have an Arabia where you get a lot of things settled. Because sometimes the adversary is doing everything he can to get you to disbelieve the truth. And you have to come to the point where you're going to trust God no matter what. That is what the Bible says. Well, Billy Graham had to do that. He, he, he had a moment in his early years of ministry where a lot of his friends were backsliding and turning away from the truth. And so he said, rather than have all of these arguments and debates about how many people wrote Isaiah... And whether or not the incarnation was real, he said he went out into the, 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 the woods and he said he got down on his knees and just started praying. And he said afterwards, he sat there on that tree stump and he was just talking to God. He said, Lord, I, I don't have the answers to what all these scientists and all these other folks and these professional people are saying. But but he says, I do know what your book says. And, and, and he, he felt like God put it in his heart that all he's supposed to do is to preach this book by faith. See? Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So whenever he came into contact with something that was in conflict with the scripture, he had to come back to what the word of God says. 
Hebrews 11. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. They have a lot of different ways of people tell you how this world was made. But according to the writer of Hebrews, it was made by the word of God. So by faith, this is what we believe in accordance with the scripture. And the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's important. Well, I didn't, I didn't write any of that. That's, that's in there. So verse 17 again. I went into Arabia and then returned again unto Damascus. He was gone to Damascus to arrest some saints, but he was changed. Then he went into Arabia. So all of us need a, a, a moment. You can call it a crisis, but we all need that, that place in our life where, where God deals with our heart. And it doesn't have to be in salvation. God can do this with you five or six times in your Christian life or 20 times. You can pass through a lot of different trials and tests and temptations and you have to come face to face with God and God has to speak to you in that desert you're in. So the doctor says, we give you a year and a half and you're dead. You're in Arabia. So you got to touch God. Somebody says to you, well, there's just no way with a limited amount of resources that you have that you're ever going to be able to make these bills. Then you, you, you're in a desert and you, you got to come in contact with God. Consider how many people there are that lose farms every year out here. And for whatever amount of money it might be. But if, if, if I was facing something and it looked to me like I had to come up with a million dollars or a million and a half dollars or even less than that, then I realize I'm in Arabia. What I do know is I need to touch God. I need, a, I need to contact God. I need a relationship with him so that he can settle my heart and then when I return to Damascus, my entire disposition can be different. This man was going to Damascus to put Christians in jail, but he ended up going back to Damascus to preach. And when God changes you, you're changed. That, that's what happened with uh, Jacob. Let's not forget that wonderful story of him. That, that man was as crooked as the day is long. And if he could have, if he if he lived in Alaska, he would have sold bad igloos to the Eskimos up there. That's how crooked Jacob was, tricked his brother out of all kinds of blessings. But he ended up running away from his brother who wanted to kill him. And in the process, he ran into God. Out there in the desert, he ran into God. And while he was out there, God had to let him know, I can help you. I can bless you, but you're going to have to change. You, you, you can't be this kind of a, a tricky person that's out here deceiving people. And of course, Jacob was the kind of person he'd say to the Lord, you better believe it. I'm going to change. And God already knew in his heart he wasn't going to change. And so he ended up getting over there into the land of Iraq. And he was he was still somewhat the same, but fell in love with a woman. And in the end, his uncle, future father in law, deceived him. And he ended up reaping the harvest of what he had sown in his own family. And by the time he comes back, he meets with God again. And he's got to wrestle now with that angel. And that angel was, I mean, that angel's trying to get away from him. And Jacob said, no, no, you're not getting away from me until you bless me. And, and that, that angel left a bruise in Jacob's hip or leg, and that man was never the same again. Everything changed in that desert. 
So the next time he saw Esau, they weren't fighting. Fighting. You know what they were doing? They were hugging each other and kissing each other on the cheek. Then I missed you. I love you. God has to do that to you and me at different times in our Christian life because we have the tendency to believe we're smarter than God. And our pride is so bad that, that we honestly believe we can outsmart God. I've had a lot of conversations with people that believe they're smarter than God. You say, okay, here's what the Bible says. Well, let me, let me ask you this here or that there. And say, so, well, here's what the Bible said. And, and, and it never crosses some people's mind that the same questions being raised have been raised 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago. Well, let's move on. Verse 18 then. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and stayed with him 15 days. So I don't know if this is after three years he was saved or three years after he was out in the wilderness. I just know that he goes to see Peter, the man of God. And I can only assume that for 15 days, they likely were not talking about sporting events in the Roman theater or the Colosseum. I think Paul had questions about Jesus. Peter walked with Jesus. Paul wanted to know more and more about Jesus in the flesh. And if, if, if you had two weeks with someone who walked with Jesus, what kind of questions would you ask? I mean, I, I'd probably have a list together because I'd want to know how is it that you were able to love all them people that hated you? How could you keep your temperament, you know, in the middle of all of these people that wanted to see you dead? How in the world were you able to walk on water? You took a couple of loaves of bread and some fishes and you multiplied them and fed thousands of people. Could could someone explain to me how he did that? Peter, you were there. Was there any trickery in his hands at all? Yeah, I'd have a whole lot of questions. But I guarantee you one thing. After two weeks... I'd know more about God than I ever knew before. Mm -hmm. And when you have met people and have folks in your life that really do know the Lord and walk with God, you should want to spend time with them. Maybe there's a mother in the church that was important to you or elderly gentleman that set a, a fine example for you. Most people have had at least one person somewhere in their life who has been a good example of what it means to be a Christian, and they just enjoy being around that person. And that's what it should be. I don't think Paul was sitting here with Peter and and uh, uh, wishing he could stare at a sundial, just wondering, how long am I going to have to sit here and listen to this man? No, no, no. This, this man was enjoying the, the presence of the Lord in Peter. Have, have you ever been in, in, a, in a service where they keep the clock on the back wall? And have you ever been somewhere on the back, on the back pew or something like that, somewhere in the back, and, and the whole time you're trying to listen to the person teeth and, and you just keep seeing heads doing this? See? Yeah, yeah. You ought to see my, you ought to see my perspective as a pastor from up front. Yeah. Now that, that doesn't bother me. I'm just, I'm just bringing it up. That's all. I'm just mentioning it. Just mentioning it. That's all. Okay. But Paul says in verse 19, but other of the apostles I saw none save James the Lord's brother. Now, now James 
was not an original believer in Jesus. In fact, John chapter six says his brethren, Jesus brethren, didn't believe in him. Now, let's not forget the angel of the Lord came to Mary and the angel came to Joseph. So both of them had supernatural information that this child was going to be different. When the child finally comes into the world. Then the scripture lets us know that Jesus has siblings. And we have some of the names in the Gospel of Mark. His sisters and his brothers. Well, they didn't believe in him. That's what the Gospel of John said. Now, here is a kid being raised in the home with all of his brethren, and he was perfect. But they didn't believe in him. Everything Mary heard about this baby when he was an infant, she kept it in her heart because there was Simeon that came and prophesied about him. There was Anna, the prophetess, that came in the temple and prophesied and told everybody around Jerusalem that the Messiah was here. But yet, whatever was in mom and dad's heart towards Jesus, it wasn't in the heart of the siblings. So that, that's, that's what I'm trying to, trying to get at. Here was a kid that was without sin, and you can imagine the kind of flack he probably got from his brothers. They probably called him a goody two-shoes and everything else and said, I don't understand how come whenever somebody gets in trouble, it's us, and it's never him. And Mary and Joseph likely treated him differently simply because of the supernatural visitation that came in regard to his life. But no, they didn't believe. They didn't believe at all. And that's why the scripture says that a prophet is not without honor except in his own home country. Yeah. The people closest to you that know you, they don't see you in a supernatural way. James and some of the other siblings probably didn't care anything about an angel that came uh, to Jesus at all. But that still was the testimony of his life. And some of your own family members may not care anything about your testimony for Jesus. They they may not be as excited about the Lord as you are. But their their antagonism and their hostility towards you doesn't change or affect your relationship with God. At the age of 12, Jesus was telling his parents, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? I mean, this this is what's on my mind. I'm 12 years old. My mind is consumed with the word of God. How many 12 year olds have you known like that? You probably would have liked to raise a couple of 12-year-olds like that. You probably would have liked to have been a 12-year-old like that. But most of us weren't. Most of us were the kind of 12-year-olds that the teachers at the PTA meetings had a few things they wanted to say to mom and dad. And so with with James and his siblings, they didn't believe in the king. Now in verse 20, he says, now I'm writing unto you and I'm telling you the truth. I am not lying. Before God, I'm telling you the truth. He's given his testimony. Well, I think you can see why it's good sometimes to share about your journey with God and what the Lord's done in your life. Have you ever given your testimony to anybody? Have you ever had to stand up in front of people and share it? Have you ever one-on-one just talked with people about what it was and how it was that you came to really be turned on to God. You'd be surprised what would happen if you, if you really started thinking, thinking through that. I'm not, I'm not saying think about when you started going to church. Some people don't have any memories 
outside of church because it's all they've, they've ever known. But I'm talking about the, the, the point in your life where this thing became so precious and so real to you that you knew that as long as you were awake and every breath that you took, you wanted to do this for God. And when you think about that, then it changes how you explain your life to people. And it's the power of that testimony that is able to bring conviction to people by the power of the Holy Spirit. They hear that and they're amazed by it. So my testimony will reach people that your testimony won't reach. Your testimony will reach people Mine will never reach. Before I came to Nebraska, I was in Alexandria, Louisiana, and I put a church on the Indian reservation down there. And there was a gentleman who was a truck driver. And uh, this down in the south, they they do things a little different down there in some of the smaller churches. They don't all have boards and all that kind of stuff that the people in the some of the little churches, they just pay their tithes directly to the pastor. I mean, they just walk right up to the preacher and just give them their tithes. And then the preacher takes care of all the bills and stuff like that. You don't have to worry. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. All the years I've been here, I've never counted an offering out here. But but it was how it was on that Indian reservation. And so this this one gentleman, he would go off doing his trucking and be gone for a month and a half or weeks or whatever. And then he'd come back and then he'd come to the trailer where I was staying. And just like a lot of the other people, then they'd come, they'd bring their money. But one day we were sitting around and we were talking. And at that time I was only 28, 29 or so. And, and he was a trucker that had a past that was pretty bad. And he said, to me, just in passing one day, he said, you know, there, there are a lot of people on this reservation you're not going to be able to reach just because your life is, is not like their life has been. See, I mean, they, they'd listen to me preach and they'd hear me passionate, in love with God since I was a kid, sold out, dedicated to the Lord, promised the Lord I'd give him all the days of my youth, didn't get married till I was 29. And, and they hear all of that and, and, and all of that excites them and excites the kids and the nieces and, and the nephews. But some of them already had been through three spouses. Alcoholics, you see, drugs or, or just bad people, period, you know. And, and he just made a statement in passing. He said, but you keep preaching the way that you preach because what you're saying is going to reach a whole lot of people. But he said, some of these other people are going to have to have uh, somebody else whose whose lifestyle has, is similar to that. See, the one thing we do know about when, when folks get saved, God pulls you out of sin. And then very often, once you get Firmly grounded in sin, he send you right back into those areas where you come out when you're strong enough so that you can reach the people that were with you and you can bring them out. I wouldn't know where to go to find somebody at a crack house. I was never around that kind of a thing. I knew people who was involved with that, so I would, I, I certainly would understand how to witness to them, but I don't have a testimony of, of having gone through this, gone through that, gone through that, and I'm not ashamed of my testimony at all. I thank the Lord the, the King protected me and preserved me from a lot of that. Paul makes it very plain. He says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. But I never was the kind of person that wanted to go out and get involved with more sin just so I could experience more grace. No, no. I simply wanted to walk with God and maintain my testimony. 
But Paul shows us that you can be someone who stood by and watched Stephen be stoned to death. And you could be the kind of person that put people in jail. And even after you became a Christian, the people you imprisoned are still in jail. That's what happened with Paul. And you can be forgiven of all your sins and start all over. That's what I like about grace. Because God doesn't look at you and say, you have to be like him. She has to be like her. He simply says, I'm trying to conform everybody into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you never have to hang your head in shame because you don't have somebody else's testimony. You have your own. You're unique. And the Bible says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a beautiful thing. A couple of more verses here. So Paul says, afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia or Cilicia and was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he that persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith that he once destroyed. So he had a degree of popularity. We know from Acts chapter eight, then going into Acts chapter nine. But have you ever noticed that? If you go years without seeing somebody and then you see them again, sometimes they look different to you. Now, some scholars believe that this might have been a total of 10 years or so before Paul came back into contact with some of these churches. I have no idea, but I do know this. I, I have uh, I, I've seen people that I hadn't seen in 25 years. And had conversation with them. And then when they turned and walked away, I said to somebody saying that, who was that? See, who was that? Because I didn't recognize them. Maybe in, in high school, they were extremely wide or extremely small. Maybe they were shorter and they become taller. Maybe they were very uh, healthy, but now are somewhat sickly. But I didn't I didn't recognize them. And Paul here, he says he was unknown by face. To the churches, somebody forgot who he was. They forgot. They didn't forget the name because in verse 23, his fame and reputation was still there. This was the man that was persecuting the church. But imagine what they must have felt like when they heard that the one that was persecuting us is now preaching the same faith. that We believe you talk about transformation. God takes a man or a woman. Who is going east and then makes them go west in order to do the things of God. You may not have persecuted the church before you became a Christian. You may not have been a liar, a murderer, or any such thing. But by virtue of the fact that you were living a life that was out of conformity with God's word means that you were in a state of rebellion. And God takes all acts he sees all acts of rebellion as a bad thing. And the only time you can move from being a child of wrath and being a child of rebellion to being a submitted son or daughter, a person has to be born again. And once you're born again, you move from persecuting God to preaching and proclaiming the very faith that you once tore down. So this is what Paul is saying. The faith that he once destroyed, he's trying to build it up. Well, that's all we're trying to do here in in our state and in our nation. We don't want to see the faith of God torn down. We, we want to see the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ 
proclaim the truth without fear and without compromise. But you know what? If, if I backslid tomorrow morning and all other preachers backslid, there's still folks like you that can hold up the bloodstained banner. There's no reason for you to go the way of any preacher who decides they no longer hold to the original truths of the scripture. And because of the change in his life, Paul says in verse 24, they glorified God and me. So your life should lead people to rejoice. They should say, I see God in you. And that's powerful. That should lead people to want to praise God. To, to look at a sinner and to see beyond their sin. To see that that man or that woman could actually one day drive a church van or a church bus and bring people to the house of God. It takes faith to do that. To look at somebody who's so filled with anger that, I mean, all they have ever wanted to do is fight and swear at people. And then when they become a Christian, suddenly they become a very tender hearted person and little kids want to just climb up in their arms. See, if you can envision that for people, then God can change people's hearts and change people's lives. But you've got to have a vision for that. We have to want to see people really born again and changed by the power of God. Not just going to church, but saved by the blood of Jesus. And when that happens, oh my goodness, they'll be praising the Lord. Say, oh my goodness, folks, I remember what he was like, what she was like. But now these folks are serving God. We ought to all rejoice. Praise the King. Amen. I'm telling you, salvation is a powerful thing, folks. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And they always say, God saves the worst first. So you remember that next time you look in the mirror. He saves the worst first. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this evening that we can look into the word. We know that it's true. You're the only one that's able to change hearts and lives like, like this, oh God. We're born again of incorruptible seed. God, we want you to make each one of us examples and witnesses in this community. We pray that with our mouth, our testimonies would be used to bring conviction into the lives of people that don't know you. We pray that with our hands, we'd be able to lay them on people and bless them rather than cursing folks. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen.